Getting internet access from low-Earth orbit satellites has great promise for addressing the digital divide, supporting disaster response, and creating new opportunities for communication. If you're curious about how these systems work as well as the technological and policy implications, download the free white paper, Perspectives on Low-Earth Orbit Satellite Systems for Internet Access by the Internet Society. Just go to internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. That's internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz Podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and all the other Packet Pusher Podcast shows. So if you're interested, just go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship. You can get all the details. And if you got something cool working with V6, we definitely want to hear about it. Or if you're doing an interesting V6 project, that works too. Um, so just reach out, come join us on the V6 Buzz, and we can chat all about it. Uh, I'm Ed Horley with my co-host, Tom Coffin and Scott Hogan. Today, we're going to chat a little bit about IPv6 only and vendor support and where things are at and uh, and and maybe some nuance around what the difference is between like IPv6 support and IPv6 only support right? and the differences and, and tease a little bit of that out because we all have recently run into some some problems around some, I don't know if they're problems, but just some observations about this because we've been working on projects and this has come up uh, more than a few times. So we thought we'd talk about it on the show. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't yeah. know, uh, do we do we want to tackle what the definition is for sort of like general IPv6 support, which I think fits more in the category of like, hey, we can we can get things working in dual stack and the v6 stuff actually replies back and that's awesome. But uh, v6 only is a very different animal, I think. And yeah, tease that out. Yeah, the vendor's like, oh yeah, my product works okay in a dual protocol environment. It won't crash. Oh, you want to turn IPv4 off <laughs> in the IPv6 only case. And then you're like, the vendors suddenly starts to get nervous. Right. Yeah. And I think this has happened to us several times where they're like, we don't know what will happen. Like, we don't know if that will work or not. And I don't know if it's necessarily a, a thing yet for a lot of the vendors out there. And I'm including OS manufacturers, mm -hmm. um, you know, hardware, networking, firewall, everyone that how often they're actually really truly testing an IPv6 only instantiation of the product. Like you're not going to turn on any IPv4 within the product at all. And you're going to basically get this thing to work on an IPv6 only network. And well, I feel kind of bad for the vendors here just to... Don't ever quote me saying that How again, dare you? please. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, the song and dance you think you got for a dual stack, wait till you hear the vendor song and dance for IPv6 only. But but no, seriously, there might be like really robust IPv6 only support. But then if you're actually building out a greenfield environment with whatever that solution is, you quickly realize that there's all this other stuff, you know, maybe it's management plane or uh, control plane stuff where it, you you don't have the option for v6 only where there are certain components that will only connect over ipv4 or, or you know uh, have to rely on dual stack and so it, you get the you know the, the deployment of ipv6 only your greenfield you know beautiful ipv6 only eden quickly becomes a, a dystopia of all you know a bunch of management plane ipv4 stuff that you didn't think mm -hmm. about or that the vendor you know can brashly claim hey ipv6 only works for this subset yeah, for the of data the functionality for the data yeah, plan, for the data plan. yeah exactly yeah, right. and so but there's a there's yeah. a bunch of scaffolding that's what i like to call it is scaffolding yeah. to stand up to get things working right around management or control plan and a bunch of other things or, or you know let's say you have a controller can the controller talk to you that way like what is actually happening there and i think that's mm -hmm. that's the crux of it plus like all the zero touch provisioning does zero touch provisioning work on v6 only like does it is that even a thing like mm -hmm. 
has, have you even ever thought about it or is that even a concern or, mm-hmm. so I think there's a lot of gaps just across all the vendor platforms. Yeah. I, I don't think this is unique to any one particular vendor, uh, but it is frustrating because there seems to be a lack of conversation across the industry about this particular issue. Um, I guess that's one of the reasons we want to have the show. We've heard of products where the vendor, oh, in order to activate the software license, it talks yes. to a, a cloud service and that requires IPv4 because of the way that was built. You know, it reaches out and allows the product to sit behind a NAT gateway, but then activate its license, you know, right. or, oh, you want to do a software update to that product. Well, our software update service only uses IPv6 to transport down the new firmware, software, patch, whatever. Use use IPv4, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's similar. Like there's a lot of times where you'll see a product that gets built, but they'll buy a third-party platform for like maybe their support services. Mm-hmm. And they'll get that developed as a third-party agent that's hosted by someone else to open the tickets and do RMAs and do all that sort of stuff. And their platform, even though the vendor themselves may have full V6 and V6 only support, that particular platform doesn't. And so yeah. they're stuck with this like weird hybrid dual stack requirement, even though their product itself is fine. But this plugin module that's doing, you know, notification and whatever yeah. else is, yeah. is doesn't support it. As part of your support contract, our technician right. is going to remote in somehow into your product and check the mm-hmm. configurations or screen share or something and see how it's working and help you troubleshoot. Because it's a it's a service you paid for is the right. software maintenance and technical support. Yeah. And that takes place over IPv4 or something through some secure and I've seen VPN, the, I, back channel, something. Right. And I've seen this a lot for actually for storage products on the storage product side for the, for the, you know, head and controller and they're trying to debug or figure out something that's going on. And that's, you know, the call home feature is V4 only. It doesn't have any V6 capabilities. And so you're like, Oh, well, that's not going to work for us. Like I can't run my management network as V6 only because of this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not something that the vendor controls because, you know, they're supporting V6 on the actual front side of the, mm-hmm. of the interfaces for, you know, the actual storage platform. Like yeah. it's got support for there, but it doesn't have it in that side. So it's 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 a little strange. And and V six only, it's it's one of those things of like how wide do you go, right? Mm-hmm. Is it data plane only? Is it control plane? Is it management plane? All of yeah. the above. And we don't seem to get as exercised about the idea of having V four as a service. It might be like okay, we're, well, dual stack. We know we're not really talking about an IPv six only deployment if we still have you know legacy V four that we have to support mm-hmm. via dual stack. But there, there's a subtle difference between that and, say, having a V6 underlay or whatever terminology you want to use where you figured out how to do V4 as a service over the top of V6 infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so some of that scaffolding then in some sort of like inception-like way gets folded into the V4 as a service. And then is it really dual stack? It's a more uh, complex conversation, I think, than most vendors are are able to have based on, you know, this missing support for certain features of IPv6 at, at various levels in, in the overall network infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, that's different than just a security vendor who, you know, needs to get signature updates to the product or thread intel feed or or information about bad reputation or communicate to a geolocation database or something about and, and that 
traffic takes place over IPv4. So it prevents you from running that security protection measure in a V6 only network. But you're right, the the underlay could be V6 only like that. Yeah, and then and, and then is it even a concern at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Like like where where does that fit, and does that really check the box? Um, uh, in, in regards to an area concern, because you're doing, I, I guess, for an underlay, you're technically not in the data path, right? right. I guess that's all control plane, right? Because you're you're managing the infrastructure for what's supported up yeah. above it. Right. Um, we're getting into the getting into the weeds of the semantics. Yeah. <laughs> How you want to describe <laughs> where where V6 only is running, but but I think it's it's a fair point in terms of if you can run IPv4 as a service over the top. Um, which I would think many shops would want to do or potentially run dual stack over the top. Are you running an IPv6 only network <laughs> at yeah. that point? What is that? What definition does that actually meet? To, uh, you know, and that's, that's, that becomes an interesting, I guess, yeah. I guess the, I mean, I, I guess we could steal from our counterparts on the service provider side and they don't talk about their MPLS networks in that way. Right. <laughs> right. Right. In terms yeah, of the transport this, that they would run across, right? Yeah, there's this parallel universe, this dystopian IPv6 only <laughs> parallel universe. That no, that's that's the Eden. It's the other <laughs> stuff. It's the dystopia. <laughs> well, I suppose it depends on which which lens, which way you're looking through the yeah. lens, right? Oh, yeah. So it's uh, yeah. I think I think it's it's sort of interesting. I I do think. And I, I must admit, it's just my personal frustration of dealing with uh, current operating systems and sort of what's going on today. And then, Scott, you've been doing a lot of testing on this, but mm-hmm. trying to run v6 only mm-hmm. with all of the current ways that host operating systems are behaving mm-hmm. is not optimal. <laughs> I guess is the mm-hmm. polite way to say it. Like, you know, Windows, I, I think it was awesome what Windows, you know, what Microsoft did for Windows back in what was it, whenever Server mm-hmm. 2000. 8 R2 and uh, and and Windows Vista is you sort of mm-hmm. got their network stack update and we sort of converged everything and it allowed us to put transition technologies directly into the operating system mm-hmm. for you know Isotap 6 to 4 uh, Teredo and everything else to be able to work that way yeah. but now with the updates that Microsoft has done those services are turned off by default mm-hmm. now I almost think they need to go back to the old model which is I can load IPv4 independently and I can load IPv6 independently mm-hmm. and they don't require each other in any way because you literally can't turn them off yeah. one or the other. So if you're trying to operate a V6 only network, you've got this legacy V4 mm-hmm. stuff hanging around that, you know, it's going to a PIPA address. It's going to, it's going to have stuff in there yeah. and, and it doesn't help your cause at all when you're trying to move to V6 only for just from an operational standpoint. Yeah. You can, you can disable IPV4 manually or, you know, with scripting, uh, to disable IPv4 as a protocol adapter on specific interfaces, but you can't un you know un mod, un, unmod probe it from yeah. the, from the kernel. You can't yeah, it's always take there. it out of the kernel. So and then you don't have a registry uh, uh, a registry setting for yeah. that. You used to have a registry setting in before to turn off IPv6, you know, or turn off tunnel adapters or things like that. But you don't have the equivalent registry setting to say, I want to make this v6 only. Yeah. Turn off IPv4, both on the, on any loop back or any other interface. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a, a, a glaring area where I think the industry overall needs to sort of catch up. And I think this, partly the difference is, is that like uh, Linux, you can load 
v4 v6 separately um mac os you can do the same thing android you can do the same thing so there's a there's just a difference in terms of how operating systems behave overall mm -hmm. around that and what they can and can't support from a sort of traditional v6 only dependency basis and i think there's some interesting things like we talked in the previous shows about um the dhcp option 108 and ipv4 mm -hmm. and what do you use that for well you could use that to trigger Mm -hmm. um, some services on a device, and specifically, you've been working on some of the 464 XLAT and, mm -hmm. and the CLAT stuff. And, and it would be cool because the CLAT technically is in Windows, mm -hmm. right? But it just not turned on for LAN interfaces, only there for the 5G, right. 4G WAN interface side. So it would be nice if you could send it a DHCP message and say, like, hey, can you honor turning this on, please? Because mm -hmm. you're on a V6 only or you're on a V6 only network. It would be nice to have that as a as a capability. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, you don't want to have to go to each individual device and turn off IPv4 one at right. a time. Yeah, it's like it makes a, sense. an automated way, either uh, software defined configuration management system to push this out. You want an mm -hmm. Ansible playbook to turn it off, or an option, or, or an R or an option within the router advertisement. Yep. To trigger to say, hey, this is a V6 only network. All you nodes, <laughs> <laughs> all you noobs, <laughs> all y'all nodes on FF02 colon colon one. <laughs> so I, I think I think there's something there. I don't know. You know, I I, I can't imagine that everyone wants to go around and compile a CLAT into Linux either. So mm -hmm. you know, there there's needs to be work that's done probably on that side too, right? In terms mm -hmm. of support for what needs to happen. I think I think you said. Apple iOS and, and and Mac OS seem to be the furthest along in terms of capabilities for mm -hmm. what they're supporting in this particular area. So it sounds like, you know, good on Apple. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. For... Uh, even 15.7 and 16, you know, mm -hmm. much yep. better. And then Mac OS 13 really improved the ability and it automatically kind of triggers that CLAT behavior. It creates itself that fake V4 address, you'll see mm -hmm. it, you know, you'll see a 192.0.0.2 or something like that. Right. And like, oh, it doesn't have a V4 address, but it's got that. But then I see there's this other CLAT interface and it's using by default 64FF9B, 64 colon FF9B colon colon slash 96. It's using, oh, that's that NAT 64 well-known prefix. And you'll see that when you do a, you know, IF config or something. Right. No, it's very cool. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's built in the OS just makes it that much simpler for everyone in terms of the implementation details of what, what goes on. And we know it works at scale because mm -hmm. this is how it works for T-Mobile and you know Reliance Geo and mm -hmm. everyone else in terms of their handsets. If they got Android handsets and it's an IPv4 only app, it's still going to work. Mm -hmm. Even if it chooses to do um, you know a direct IP address, it's still possible to, to have it work that way, which is sort yeah. of interesting. You can also trigger it on iOS and macOS by turning v4 off on the interface. Right. You definitely have that ability to do that in macOS, turn off IPv4, and that'll trigger it as well. If you yeah. didn't have a way to do DHCP option 108. Right. Activate the CLAT. Or in the future, have some sort of RA that it tells us that's what's going on. Let's pause the conversation for a message from the Internet Society. 
You can now get internet access from space thanks to low Earth orbit or LEO satellites in companies such as Starlink and OneWeb. And in 2023, more companies are planning to launch hundreds, even thousands more satellites to support broadband services, including Amazon's Project Kuiper and Canada's Telesat. As these systems are being launched, now is the opportunity for all of us to help shape conversations and ensure that these LEO systems help build a bigger, stronger internet accessible to everyone. These LEO systems have great promise to help address the digital divide and connect the unconnected. Kids can learn online, people can connect with others, play games, stream movies, schools and libraries can connect and bring the internet to many people. LEO systems can also support emergency responders and help get critical internet access during natural disasters. So there are big opportunities on the horizon, but also questions. Will these systems be affordable to the people who need them most? Will they have the capacity to support all the people who want access? Will they support the open standards and internet technologies we care about? What policy issues do they raise? How do we ensure competition? What about the environment? The Internet Society, a global nonprofit advocating for an open and trusted internet, dives into these questions in a new paper, Perspectives on LEO Satellite Systems for Internet Access. You can download this paper for free and share it with others by going to internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. One more time, you can get the paper Perspectives on LEO Satellite Systems for Internet Access at internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. And now, back to the podcast. Maybe there, there is some mixed messaging here for the vendors. I mean, we're ostensibly talking about vendor support for IPv6 only, but but there's so many different... I mean, these are all tools in the belt that are nice to have to, you know, mm -hmm. to get your v6 network up and running with, you know, with little or some or no IPv4, depending on the, the situation that you're in. Mm -hmm. But there's not like a standardized architecture here uh, that the vendors can, that you can sort of, sort of point to for the vendors to hold their feet to the fire to say, why don't you support this as far as v6 only goes? And so in the absence of that, you have, I think, where the demand for this is coming from in the form of, you know, the federal mandate to, to move to an IPv6 only network in a very short period of time. And then sort of a, a collective grand scrambling of everybody figuring out what does that look like and what does that mean? And so, you know, hey, vendors, if you weren't confused before and getting beat up and a lot of grief about, you know, not supporting all of the, all of the things, whether it's IP, whether it's dual stack or whether it's IPv6 only, you know, now you're getting, I'm sure you're probably uh, getting an earful from, from a, a bunch of agencies that are buying gear and trying to figure out how do we stand this up in a V6 only posture in order to meet these mandates. And so maybe, you know, maybe that's a bit of a devil's advocate view of like how difficult it is for the vendors to sort of prioritize in that, given that, that set of circumstances. And they're probably getting asked for a bunch of things that folks don't necessarily know everything that the correct way to ask for all this stuff. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> In terms of articulating what their what they really what their needs actually are, because they haven't done enough V6 deployment or haven't worked on enough V6 stuff to be able to ask correctly for um, what they actually what would actually make sense for the vendors to actually implement. So you suddenly are getting flooded with all these request sets, and you're trying to sort of deduplicate, right? Mm -hmm. Deduplicate to figure out what everyone's asking for, and it may not be super clear. I don't I don't know if that's a legitimate. You know, I'm Tom, you're I think you're the only one of us that's worked at a an actual manufacturer who's had to support stuff like that. So I imagine that's a, a big concern, right, for them is just ingesting what your customers are saying and how much of it is baloney and how much of it is real and <laughs> how much of it is something you could actually support, right? So Yeah. And you you know, you would you would wanna think that what is sort of best in a in an idealized or optimized way for whatever the architecture 
you know, should be according to, you know, enough of a consensus of the folks that are actually out there building networks. But the reality is like with every vendor, it's like who's swinging the biggest hammer, which who's the customer that's clamoring for this? Why do they want it? You know, how quickly do they want it? How much money do they have to spend to get the feature prioritized? And, you know, that's I'm not I'm not suggesting we should all be completely cynical about how that process plays out because there's a lot of, you know, uh, virtuous development that happens to get those other features incorporated in a way that that, you know, lifts all the boats, so to speak. Um, but yeah, V6 only, you know, there are examples of that dating back to, you know, my tenure at, at, at a vendor and, and seeing those requests come in from uh, a customer that had a, a pretty big spend and could make that a priority. And so, you know, you see the vendor doing the right thing. But that's in the again, that's in the absence of a sort of standardized IPv6 only architecture uh, that would make it easier to sort of prioritize or deprioritize, you know, particular features that would help uh, customers architecture get there sooner. Right. Yeah. Well, and we've I mean, talked about how dual stack masks these V4 dependencies and it's not until they go mm -hmm. turn off IPv4 do these things reveal themselves. You know, an enterprise might think, oh, I have VLAN 222, you know, yeah. second uh, building two, second floor, second quadrant of that floor, cubicle farm. I'm going to turn off V4 and leave that as a V6 only network. Oh, no, something broke. Oh, there were a ton of printers <laughs> on that network. Oh, my gosh. OK, so now I create two VLANs, 2224, and I stick all the printers and the IoT stuff and things that still need IPv4. And then I create a VLAN 2226. And that's the V6 only stuff that still can work or seems to work okay in V6 only. You know, those things, the customer may not know they have that issue and may not be able to tell the vendor until the 11th hour. Yeah, it's called a TAC case. <laughs> it's got TAC side or, or whatever, whatever technical assistance center you need to call, JTAC, et cetera. And you're like, hey, this isn't working. It's like, oh, well, <laughs> it would have been nice if you contacted us before, mm -hmm. right? And validate out your design. If you tested in the lab. Exactly. And I think maybe this gets back to the original point around the V6 only. It's incumbent on 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 the folks that are that are looking or interested in doing v6 only to really test and validate stuff uh, within a proof of concept lab to make sure that they're they're going to get what they expect and that it's probably unlikely that their vendor has gone through and done that work um robustly on their own they may have set something up quickly and just double checked and made sure that you know they can get something functional but to actually have it as a as a core functional component that's going to work in the way that's anticipated, I think this it becomes incumbent more and more so that you get some sort of lab to be able to validate what's going on. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but that just feels like the right course of action for what needs yeah. to happen. I think a vendor who is testing their product would test it in a dual stack environment to say, okay, I've tested it in a dual stack environment and I feel good. It can work over V4 and V6, right? you know, and it can work either. So, yeah. hey, we give our product a stamp of approval. It's V6 ready. They didn't take that other step in their testing, product testing to turn off V4. We've talked about this in other episodes where there's a certain hyper-focus on particular features for IPv6, whether that's dual stack or IPv6 only support. And then, you know, we've mentioned before, look like digging into the documentation and realizing, look, there aren't any even any documentation examples that include IPv6. 
Mm. And then, of course, that ties back to are there reference architectures? And so when we talk about standing up a lab, has the vendor stood up a lab and created a reference architecture that has exposed V4 dependencies as an example for something they might be supporting in V6? It's adjacent to having a particular feature that's supported for V4 or for dual stack or for IPv6 only, but going going further and and helping gen, helping create the next generation of IPv6 only architectural reference designs that are going to work for customers and and help them figure out what how to prioritize things. It's a good point. I think it's a there's a glaring deficit of material that's available for folks that are trying to move in this direction. Uh, there's yeah. definitely a big void, <laughs> yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I and I think uh, the vendors need to to step in to start helping uh, explain, you know, validated architectures, supported platform designs and architectures, and how they are thinking about how they want their customers to deploy IPv6. I, I can't imagine that they would ever feel like the answer would be okay to say like, oh, I've got a v4, you know, yes, we support IPv4, just go out and build what you want, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> And if you'd never provided a V4 reference architecture, people would look at you sideways and be like, well, we're just not going to deploy you because we don't understand the right way to actually utilize your technology to make our IPv4 network work. And they quickly realized that it made a lot of sense to provide reference architectures that were validated and tested and, and proven out in terms of availability, you know, upgrading, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there's a lack of that information all around the V6 space for sure. Oh, there's our critique, everyone, our end of year critique <laughs> <laughs> of looking through, looking, looking past what we had to deal with for the year and, 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 and the struggle bus that is IPv6 only. So, and, and, and we feel for many of the, many of the folks out there who are trying to do V6 only, you know, keep it up. It's a uh, yeoman's work, right? Cause it's, it's not going to be easy. And uh, I think there's a lot of people who are going to uh, struggle through it and learn a lot of lessons. <laughs> In 2023. In 2023. Yeah. Continue. I think it's it's smart to try to turn it off because then you know where you stand sooner rather than later. Yeah. And then you you learn as the process uh, you learn that process, learn how to troubleshoot it, learn how to discover those things that are still trying that are still stuck on V4. And you're in a more advantageous position, I'd say. By taking that next step and trying to turn off E4. Because if you're going to test it, you might as well test it for the future state. And and learning the workarounds for the V4 stuff that doesn't work, the you know, in a V6 network, DNS 6.4, NAT 6.4, server load balancing or proxying, a handful of well-known, well-performing solutions that you'll be deploying and and using at scale. And it's not something to be afraid of. Yeah, but at the same time, you need to know what's going to break. Exactly. <laughs> one, <Yeah>. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you guys. Well, that pretty much covers the V6 only and, and where vendors sit at. So we're hoping that a few vendors are listening and hey, we would really appreciate if you guys start testing and working on the V6 only story. So go or pick. or if any of our listeners are trying to turn off V4 and they run into a problem, we'd like to hear about that too. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that'd be great to hear about. So reach out to us and let us know. Well, unlike V6, we run out of space for the podcast. You can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter at IPv6 Buzz, assuming Twitter's still up. And you can hit myself and Scott on Twitter at Scott Hogan, at E. Horley. Tom's on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Tom Coffeen. He's sticking with the, the folks that are running V6 on the backside there. So that's right. Good for him. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packer Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. And if you like the show, if you can give us a rating on iTunes, that'd be great. Um, if you like this podcast, 
podcast, we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break Podcast, plus all the other great technical content over at PacketPushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.